so that helps a lot. It's the enthusiasm that I have and the curiosity is infectious and rubs off on the interviewee and they're much more willing to be open as a result. Mm. Yeah, like open-hearted curiosity. If, if you go in with that attitude and you mean it, right. people will respond in a positive way. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of Tourist Information. I'm thrilled to have on the show this week, John Runson. I knew him best, maybe you did too, from his documentary, Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, from the Butterfly Effect podcast series about how the porn industry was derailed by a Canadian headquartered company. Um, Or his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, from 2015, which has only gained more purchase in the ensuing years. But Runson is just one of the most brilliant interviewers that I've ever listened to. And he's often compared and lumped in with Louis Theroux. I'd encourage you, if you haven't listened to it already, to listen to the interview I had with him on this series. Um, But Runson's just a fascinating character, and I think he moved to the United States around the same time that I did, 2010, 2011. And I just wanted to catch up with him and and review his career and and some of the work that millions of people have enjoyed. He, He is just one of these people that can get so much out of a topic. You know, you can get that kind of clickbait title that lures you in, and then there's just so much more depth and pathos that he's able to offer to people, and um, that's a real gift. And so I hope you enjoy this week's guest, John Runson, on Tourist Information. I wanted to touch on uh, both you and I are transplants to New York. You came... 2012, is that right? Yeah, moved in August 2012 uh, for no good reason. We were living in a part of London that we didn't especially love, so we wanted to move. So we thought, well, we could move to a different part of London or we could move to New York. I I used to have this sort of romantic image that, well, I used to go to New York a lot in my 20s and I I stayed with a friend on Bleecker Street and I always thought one day I'd want to live here. But to be honest, by the time I moved to New York, I was too old to enjoy the things that I that I would have wanted to in, to have enjoyed had I lived there in my 20s like like clubbing yeah. um, uh, so by the time I moved there I, I immediately fitted into the other type of New Yorker which was um, neurotic highly strung upper west side Jew yelling at nothing so <laughs> That's that's the that's the New York that I moved into, and and then um, a year two no about three years ago we we pretty much moved moved upstate. Mm, how do you like that? I like it. I I, I love um, the, the I love all this, the the rolling farmlands and the the grain silos and everyone's nice. We've 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 moved to a kind of nice part of upstate New York, which isn't. It isn't preppy and precious. It's a nice social mix, probably about 70% liberal, 30% Trump, which feels like quite a good balance. Because um, if, if it's, you know, because you ought to be in a bubble. Um, so I'm, I'm um, yeah, love it. Yeah. Did, um, when was the first time you, I'd like to get to, I really enjoyed, I re-listened to your interview with Louie and uh, watched your Stanley Kubrick documentary 
Kubrick's boxes. I mean, there's so many things I want to cover with you because uh, you 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 go right into my sweet spot of interests, I guess, obsessions. Um, but I'm curious what you imagined. You mentioned your first year in New York having situational anxiety, which is quite a lovely term. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't really know anybody who doesn't have situational anxiety. Well, actually, I got... I, I actually, that's I didn't get. I got diagnosed with something called situational depression, but that was I'm mixing it up. Mixing yeah, it that up. was Sorry. that was that was about seven or eight years later, um, huh. having having just you know a bunch of stress piling it on top of me, and then like an idiot, I just you know carried on doing interviews and just started blaring on about how I now had situational depression, and now I feel a little bit embarrassed that I was so candid you know during that period which only lasted acutely like a few weeks but then I just you know I just overshared hence you knowing yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it was interesting because uh, but just before I left New York you mentioned with I think with Louis maybe it was a, a separate interview I read uh, time out New York maybe where one of your favorite things to do is to walk from the Upper West Side up to the George Washington Bridge. Yeah. Along Riverside Park. I think I needed to ha have a little bit of Manhattan that was my own. I, I felt too much like uh, I was very discombobulated. Not my wife or son. Um, I remember like the first week or, that we moved to the city, um, we were in a train carriage, like we were on, we were on the subway. And I just had this like panicky, ridiculous panicky thought, like, I don't understand. Like when I lived in London, I felt like I could look into the eyes, not that I ever would, but look into the eyes of somebody sitting opposite me on the train and kind of know what was going on inside their heads. Like know, you know, the the, the concerns of fellow Londoners and so on. Um, but in New York, it's like I, I didn't know what they were thinking. I, I felt it, it was like it was... Um, it was just so so foreign to me, and I found that discombobulating. And I said that to, I remember to my wife and son. I said, I don't, I don't know what anyone in this carriage is thinking. And uh, they said, Well, why is that bad? Uh, and, and of course, they were right, and, and I was wrong. But it was just the the you know early early homesickness and misery, really. Uh, so yeah, I started walking up to the George Washington Bridge and back because. Uh, I, I wanted a little bit of New York that was mine, that I would recognise it felt like home. And the way to do that it would be to like repeat the same actions over and over again until it became familiar. Uh, yeah. All this was uh, all this was just a year of of homesickness, which played to to my worst instincts, being uh, isolating, social awkwardness, staying in. Um, but luckily, that ended after a year. Uh, um, I started curating a show in Brooklyn with my friend Maeve Higgins. Um, we were a kind of storytelling comedy show. Uh, that helped a lot. Got, I met a whole bunch of new people through doing that. And then everything kind of became okay. And now I, now I'm, it's just home. I'm a citizen and it's home. That's right. You, you know, I'm still on the green card. I haven't gotten around to the citizenship yet. Right. Maybe. My aversion to tests, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, well, the, the test that I took, because this was pre-Trump changing the test, was, mm -hmm. like, incredibly easy. 
like you know what's what's name 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 the ocean on the west coast but now trump i, I think they he's introduced like new he introduced new questions which biden hasn't yet um eradicated mm. and they're sort of they're questions with ambiguous answers mm. it's like how many different ways could they fuck up the immigration you know system <laughs> it's like now now the citizenship questions have have answers that could go either way and then if you answer <laughs> it's like fuck's sake uh, so i hope that um i, ho I hope Biden puts things back to how they were well, it's funny. It's funny what you said about being on trains, because I remember that was my first daunting emblem of New York, of just terror of, of holding people up at the turnstile or something and just right. the, speed, the speed at which New York runs. But <laughs> yeah, you do speed up uh, uh, like in England. The emails are all like, um, uh, oh, hi, Cynthia, so lovely to have heard from you, ah, la, 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 la. and then, oh, lots of love, John XX. It's yeah. like, what, we like babies? And then, but, but then when I moved to New York and I was like emailing people, they'd like reply with these like three word replies and no hugs and kisses. Right. And at first I was like, these people are <laughs> monsters. And, but now I sort of, but now I, now my emails, if I get away with like one word replies, I'll do it. Right. No more, no more hugs and kisses. That just reminds me of a story. I, I, I um, went UFO hunting one time with the pop star Robbie Williams and um, I was at his house. Um, and he, he, told, he, he told me the story about how he, he had a text from a fan one time um, and the fan had said that I think her grandfather had just died and she was really depressed and, and somehow she had his number and she just wanted to, you know, say that his music, you know, was really helping get her through this difficult time because she was so depressed about the death of her grandfather and Robbie didn't really know how to reply so he, so he typed into the box XO, you know, kiss, cuddle, um, but as it sent, it auto-corrected to so. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another reason to not smother work well, colleagues with email kisses. Very, very this... hours level misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it, interesting that you say to go on the train in New York and not know what people are thinking creates anxiety. Because I remember Marlon Brando observed, like part of the reason why he moved to Tahiti is he described the Tahitians as like palm trees in the sense of you can never know what they're thinking. And he was so desperate to be amongst human beings where you couldn't just automatically intuit it. But for you, it's anxiety. For him, it's, it's the opposite. It's relief. Right. Well, I mean, this was an extreme period in my life. You know, we sure. just up uprooted our whole lives for no reason. We just sort of win and move to New York. And so any any thought I had in the first year of moving to New York has no validity. Right. Did it did it live? I mean, I come from Vancouver, which which in my mind, like it consistently is ranked as one of the most livable cities in the world, which is a fascinating thing to say because mm. it. It sounds well, like I get it. Vancouver, you have the best. That Stanley Park seawalls, like the best, best jog I've had in my life. 
It is very, you know, I, it's funny because when you mentioned Riverside Park, I lived on Riverside Drive way up on 160th. So we had the inverse route. I would walk down to you and come back to George Washington Bridge. Ah, maybe we passed each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I thought we could talk a little about, I had um, an adult film actress, um, Dana Vespali on the show and she recommend she was the one who turned me on to interesting choice of words your your podcast um the butterfly effect which she highly recommended and i you know you had also your your book um what is it, the days of august is that correct? Uh, actually they're, they're both podcasts um both? yeah the, the um so i made between about um i wrote this book could say you've been publicly shamed and and then in the which became, which was like, when it was published, it was like a hand grenade being thrown into the world. Like it was a very noisy publication. Everybody had an opinion on that book. And I should say that most of the opinions were very positive, but but there was a lot of noise. And I, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more fun um, after after that stressful experience. And so I decided to make a podcast about the tech takeover of the porn industry, which was the butterfly effect, the, the ripples of the of what happened when a guy called Fabian had an idea to give the world free porn. Yeah. Um, and then I made a follow-up podcast called The Last Days of August, uh, which, which was a darker story about the industry. It was about the death of a, a porn star called August Ames, who died shortly after we finished making The Butterfly Effect. So we returned to make a sort of darker show about the industry. Well, I say darker show about the industry, a darker show about the about the dynamics, like the the clashes of personalities that happen within the industry. Yeah, yeah, I I, I listened to the the butterfly effect, but not not the latter podcast. So sorry, I misconstrued it as a as a book. I wasn't sure. Um, That's but okay. I, I wonder what drew you into it because the butterfly effect was so fascinating on so many levels. And I really enjoyed Louis Theroux's, both of his documentaries on porn, because it seemed to touch on a similar issue in that this demarcation of porn thriving way more than convention, conventional films. I don't remember what it was at its height. Do you like that? I, I remember somebody comparing it to porn generates more money than I think Hollywood, Disneyland, and maybe it was like all of professional American sports combined or something. Wow. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I know that in the 90s, when it was all DVDs, people were just raking it in. And um, uh, and then when the internet began, they all had paywalls. But they were sort of bloated. They, they were slightly victims of their own excesses, I'd say, the porn industry, uh, because they were like charging a fortune for, to get beyond their paywalls, charging a fortune for DVDs and charging a fortune for access to their websites. It was a bit last days of Pompeii. Um, and and then Fabian came along and they dropped the ball. Like I, My friend Fenton Bailey, who I made a bunch of documentaries with, he made this show years ago about the history of porn. And he said every technological advance, porn was always at the forefront of. So VHS, 16 millimeter, it's always porn. Porn is driving technology. And here was one occasion where porn wasn't driving technology because um, this guy Fabian came along, who wasn't a porn person, he was a tech bro, and he decided to uh, give the world YouTube for porn. 
YouTube already pre-existed. So the concept of free streaming content um, pre-existed porn, and that, that was very new. It just shows how uh, how how um, the air bloated the industry had got because of all the money coming in. They 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 couldn't see what was what was happening in front of their eyes. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's funny also, I mean, my, my mother was born in Budapest, and I know that the apparatus they had for communist propaganda in Hungary, when they shifted their, their government to democracy, they, I think they were one of the largest producers of porn with the existing infrastructure from right. communist propaganda, which I quite loved. Wow. Communists love to recycle. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, well, so that's, but why did I, I don't know, why did I do want to do the butterfly effect? So part of it was personal, like, when So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, which is kind of the first book that, uh, that looked at um, what has now become known as cancel culture. Yeah. So, so between me and Monica Lewinsky doing her TED talk, both things came out pretty much the same month, we, we kind of kick-started the whole conversation about social media shaming. And I, I didn't realize just what an explosion that would be. Um, people, it was just like, honestly, it was like, usually I, I consider myself like the old man on the battlefield telling everybody to calm down. But on that occasion, I inadvertently just created people screaming at each other and um uh, so I just wanted to do something that was a little bit more fun after that and I thought well spending time in LA hanging around porn sets that sounds like more fun and and um then I almost as like a break but then I got completely drawn into the narrative uh, which turned out to be incredibly moving and um human um and I'm thrilled that the, that the porn community took that show to their hearts. Uh, the context is that um, Netflix had just brought out that film, Hot Girls Wanted. Hot Girls Wanted, is that what it's called? I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, and it was all about a really sleazy little corner of porn, these like in Miami where, you know, everyone was exploiting uh, the, the girls and so on. And, and it was a really unpleasant side of the industry. And I had all these people in the San Fernando Valley saying to me, that's so unfair. You know, we we care here in the valley, we care about each other when we care about ethical standards and we we try and avoid um exploitation as much as possible. And um so it was it was really fun and interesting to make a story which wasn't, you know, some urbane liberal going in and being you know superior to it was which i never do anyway i always want to try and be on a level with the people who i'm speaking up about i'm speaking to I, I listened to the entire thing uh during quarantine my girlfriend and i go go on hikes and so we would listen to you as we would drive to these various destinations and both of us just marveled at your ability to interview people and get them to feel comfortable and 
and how you're able to disarm people and get them to reveal themselves. Like it was something we really marveled at. Right. Because I, I try and only do stories where I have genuine curiosity. And so if I'm genuinely curious about something and, you know, excited to be telling the story, excited to be talking to that person. Um, if I ask, if I hear myself asking questions that might be offensive or difficult and coming out of other people's mouths because I'm so curious and um, bouncy about it uh, people are just happy to answer the questions and and it's because you know they're, they're not feeling like I'm trying to trap them right uh, if I was ever uh, that kind of journalist that sort of give them enough rope to hang themselves sort um, which I was back in back in the old days. I'm certainly not anymore. Um, so that helps a lot. It's the enthusiasm that I have and the curiosity is infectious and rubs off on the interviewee, and they're much more willing to be open as a result. Mm. Yeah, like open-hearted curiosity. If if you go in with that attitude and you mean it, right? People all respond in a positive way. Because it was particularly interesting to contrast yours with Louis, Louis in the first documentary with the porn stars when it was on the rise. Not, well, not the rise, but it kind of at its apex. Um, I remember it was the only time I ever saw him in his entire career be cruel to a subject where there was a porn star who was engaging in homosexual porn, even though they themselves were not bisexual or homosexual. And he was goading him, you kind of like it, don't you? You kind of enjoy it, don't you? And you could see the, the subject saying, no, I really don't. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is really not what I, I have to do it to earn the money, but I, re I really don't enjoy this. It was a very strange moment that's unlike, I, I can't think of another moment where I could isolate him. I don't know. King now. I well, I, I listened to your to the Louis episode when when you approached me and uh, to do this, and um, and I thought it was great. And, and I um, yeah, you asked really good questions, and Louis gave really good answers. I I, I really I does um, Louis is a genius at being in the moment. It's a real skill. He's when he's interviewing somebody, the, the, his responses. Louis doesn't feel like somebody who would go home and think, I wish I'd said that. Like, it feels like Louis does say it in the moment, and that's a real skill. You know, he's not blinded by social awkwardness like I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, much, I'm more of a sort of go home and figure out the best way to tell the story. Um, so, so that's kind of Louis' skill. And maybe once in a while then, because he is sort of caught up in that moment, he... Um, something tonally wrong like what you just described may may happen i wonder also maybe it's just the stigma of of sex you know when you grow up uh there's a lot of there's a lot of stigma and maybe louis was being was shackled by stigma uh, by his own feelings um well it was just curious though in in your approach because i feel like you you do not project artifice you know like there there are many, many documentarians, and, and I've been fortunate to interview a few of them. You know, Errol Morris has a kind of a really smart uncle confronting you about something, and he <laughs> sorted it out and figured it out. And if you don't take his position, you're stupid, and he's going to tell you why in 14 different ways and cite 15 different examples to back it up. But 
but I thought, you know, you, you, di you did not have any anxiety when you were confronting this, this man who hijacked the industry, completely derailed its profitability. I thought you handled that masterfully from, from oh. like a lawyer sort of perspective. Well, thank you. Um, it, it helped that Fabian was was open with me and was happy to. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I um, yeah. Uh, well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the 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 praise. Um, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I. Some years ago, I, the older you get, the more of your own baggage you accumulate. I always recommend if I ever teach people, if, I, if I'm ever like a guest teacher on a journalism course or something, I always recommend they buy this book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which is a book about the cognitive biases. Because I think the more that we as storytellers are aware of our own biases and flaws and messy thinking, even if we consider ourselves rationalists, reasonable people, we're still filled with our own biases and flaws and it's impossible to, to not be. Um, so what, if, you, if you educate yourself in that world, it means it's much more easier to, to meet the quote-unquote flawed people that you're interviewing on on a on a level playing field mm -hmm. um i really hate hierarchical journalism i i hate it when the when the me character is supposed to be representing righteous society like proper society right. and the people on the fringes are are wrong and the purpose of the show is to demonstrate their wrongness like i i can't like that's the worst type of this kind of storytelling um i always want to go in very much on a uh on, on a non-hierarchical egalitarian level and, and a way to do that is to be aware of your own your own flawed thinking which is a lot easier to do as you get older and you realize all the mistakes you've made and you know the the, the baggage that you accumulate do you, do you think for people that are naturally inclined towards observation and kind of clinical detachment, as I think would be major assets for a dispassionate observer, at least in the ideal, that we're more prone to scotomas and blind spots than your average person that's sort of more, I remember like Karen Blixen said, the wonderful thing about dogs and cats is that they're themselves to the full. And I feel like us as observers are the exact opposite. We're flying yeah. the walls of our own lives. Yes. Um, yeah, which is all the more reason to just really be aware of it. Um, which doesn't mean you're not always going. You're not ever going to succumb to to the biases. Um, I still succumb, um, but the more aware you are of it, a it makes for a more interesting story if you're putting your own flaws into the show, your own questions um and insecurities and so on and it just it, so it just makes it a more complicated um uh just a just a better story um, yeah I, i'd love to go into so you've been shamed because i'm i saw i mean just just when i asked you to come on you had put out a tweet in reference to uh alex Ale, alexi mccammon getting mm. fired from teen vogue for some 
tweets that she put out, I think four of them, at least four that I've seen photographed and put on social media, uh, exercising homophobia and some racism. And you were just saying, you know, sh should it, is this appropriate that somebody who has apologized for what they said at the time, um, like, like, I, I guess what it, what, it, what, maybe we should just start. What did you make of that incident and how did it speak to sort of what the germ was to get you rolling with that book? <laughs> third, third question, I apologize, is, is it getting better? Is it improving or are we in a much worse place than when, when, when it started? Well, I, I almost never get involved in shaming stories anymore. There, there was a few years when I was just like Mr. Shame. And in fact, my friend John Safran, who's a brilliant Australian journalist uh, sim in a similar vein to me and Louis and Nick Broomfield, uh, said that I'd become a shaming imam. Uh, and after and after that book came out, after Say You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, every single time someone transgressed, like I would get calls from journalists and tweets and um and for 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 a while I responded to every request because my my attitude back then was uh, you spend three years writing a book you you want to you want people to know about it so if journalists want to interview you and, and that happened with my, my previous book The Psychopath Test I did a I, I did interviews for a few months and and then the interview request stopped coming and it was fine. I moved on to my next thing. What I didn't anticipate was so you'd be publicly shamed was that the interview requests would never stop coming. And so, yeah, I, I was um, just inundated because people were getting shamed all the time. And my book was the first book on the subject. So I'd become like, you know, an expert, which is the last thing in the world I want to be as an expert. I want to be a inquisitive, curious storyteller not an expert. Um, I want to be like, like, like the people in Scooby-Doo solving mysteries. Uh, I, I don't know. So, um, so it took, so I realized that I was just talking too much about this book. And then the problem is that there's a bunch of people in the center who are, are really smart people. Um, but what happens is they get onto the subject and then the left attack them and they get hurt, they feel upset that they're being attacked, and they double down. And then before they know it, all they write about is the sins of, of the overreaching, you know, quote-unquote, woke Stasi. And, it becomes, and they become trapped. That's all they can talk about. And these are people, I should say, some of these people I really admire. They're very intelligent people. But I did not want to get trapped. I didn't want to become a meme. Um, and I was becoming a meme. So um, I, I opted out of it and stopped talking about it. But then, but, actually, but the other day, um, I saw the Alexi McCammond story happen. And I thought, you, you know what, there's a, there's, there is something really important about this particular story. And it's the fact that she was 17 years old when she wrote those tweets and social media justice to an extent came about because people on social media wanted to 
right the wrongs of the actual justice system. And there were lots of wrongs, you know, particularly when it comes to, to, to sexual assault. And um, so there were lots of wrongs to be righted. But there's good things about the, the old justice system too. One of them is sentencing hearings. In sentencing hearings, you get to hear the context of why the person behaved the way that they did. On social media, searching for context is very often considered a weakness. We don't want to. We don't want to hear what this person has to say about themselves. We know what they're like. It's like a frenzy of amateur sleuthing that you just assume you know exactly what the person's like from this one tweet. So we abandon sentencing hearings. We abandon context um, um, in social media justice. And another thing that we abandoned when it came to Alexi McCammond is the fact that she was a child when she when she wrote those tweets and surely um, we respect the fact that in the real justice system court records of children are sealed if an employer wants to see what the potential employee did before they were 18 and asks to see their criminal records, their juvenile records, they wouldn't get to see it. Uh, so that's the attitude I took with, with Alexi McCammond. I thought this is this is the slippery slope. If you're starting to, 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 to define somebody by something that they did when they were underage, that's, that's a, it's bad enough defining somebody by a moment in their life when they were, um, when they were an adult, but when you're 17, you know, that's, throwing out a really important part of justice. Don't you think? And I, 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 no, I really do. I mean, because I think, you know, and I, I hesitate to admit it, but I mean, I remember in Vancouver, uh, there was a real estate crash. My dad had to sell a house for a huge loss and we moved into a different neighborhood and I'm three years old and I met the first Asian person that I'd ever met before. And I asked, him what was wrong with his eyes and my dad scolded me and just said there's nothing wrong with his eyes he's a different ethnicity this is a hurtful thing to say it's a hurtful thing to ask and I felt terrible because I didn't know what I'd asked was wrong and after that I did yeah <laughs> I mean I'm sure look Lexi McCabot wasn't three she no, was no, I, I, I still feel uncomfortable admitting that I made a racist act you know, and and I, I don't know for for some if the bar is so low that that proves that you know I'm forever carrying forward this intrinsic tendency that I had that was demonstrated when I was three. It it mm -hmm. is a weird it's a weird place where we move into this neo Victorianism where everybody understands the implicit understanding of how we interpret these things. I mean, only people who really seem to care about us, journalists and authors and, and sort of people performing in that, that area, but it, it, it then becomes just decoding what is the truth behind the presented, curated comments and everything. So it, it's, yeah. it's a strange place. Where where this is taking us, I guess. Not, well, not just, that that's yeah. I mean, it's very, it's there's a lot of pseudoscience. Like every time, I understand it. Like every time somebody apologizes, what do we do? We all pass 
through we'll sort of you know analyze their apology for clues to its potential authenticity like we're all suddenly linguists now it reminds me a little bit after 9-11 when everybody was suddenly a, all these conspiracy theorists were suddenly structural engineers knowing how buildings are supposed to i i, I said to one of them once you're a ceramicist you don't, you don't know how buildings are supposed to fall um and and there's a similar thing going on i'd say with linguistics and apologies on social media right now um I, yeah I, I totally agree and i mean it is also interesting because you're talking earlier about bringing your your biases forward and your baggage while you're working and trying to recognize them but you know like i remember as a kid like reading catcher in the rye and finding out that he had abandoned new york society at the peak the apogee of his importance at a time where a writer was a really important thing and clearly you'd have to be sick to not want to be a celebrity and not be high on the hog at the new yorker the most prestigious institution and he's got the the one book that's <laughs> still selling a million copies and within a few months i was like no maybe he's the only sane person right he principle yeah, yeah. and wants to be private like maybe you're the fucked up one and it's not him yeah it's um it's funny once you these days when i go on twitter i feel like princess diana in a minefield like all around me <laughs> are, are, are hidden mines um i'm very eve even the garden of eden having i realized i just compared myself to both princess diana and eve um having having eaten of the apple uh, but for me, but I suppose what I'm saying is for now, now Twitter holds no pleasures at all. It's like, what is the point? You know, when, so something can click in you, um, something can click in you where, where you suddenly, yeah, go, go the Salinger route and think, actually, I'm getting nothing from this. I'm getting nothing from interacting in this stressful, um, high-strung way. Well, and I, I don't, I just don't feel intelligent enough to navigate when you get a certain cue towards something, something goes off in your brain that there's a cognitive dissonance out there. And I just know the last place on earth that I want to begin a robust discussion about it is social media. Right. And cognitive dissonance is a, is a bias that we should all educate ourselves um about um because that's exactly one of the things that can lead to messy and bad storytelling uh yeah so cognitive, so cognitive distance is a really good example of something that any storyteller should really understand well i mean i mean just like you're saying i mean i i totally agree with you know ronan farrow's work and the new york times bringing out harvey weinstein and me too and and an absolutely necessary reckoning but i find it intriguing when you hear about like the the bird watcher in Central Park with the, the, the in quotes, the Karen syndrome of, of because her dog isn't on a leash and this guy politely asks her to put on a leash, she calls the cops on him mm -hmm. and everybody dogpiles on her. And it's, I'm trying to understand how society is reconciling the push for believe all women but with this woman, because it's implied she's a complete racist, we could never believe her because racism is apparently the only way that a woman would lie. Well, that was actually another case, another sort of rare example of a shaming where I, again, did leap in <laughs> and say something. But that's only because, um, I, you know, 
you wake up and it's like a whole bunch of people say, well, what do you think about this one? Looking forward to, you know, so with that one. Now, I felt with Amy Cooper, um, the woman, because a lot of people were, so, so you've been publicly shamed, got a little weaponized, I would say, by, by many different um, groups across the spectrum. And when So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, I uh, sorry, sorry, when the Amy Cooper incident happened, I noticed a few people saying, oh, this is the same as Justine Sacco. This is another social media shaming, um, just like Justine Sacco. Now, Justine Sacco was the woman who famously tweeted just before getting on a plane, trying to make a sort of South Park joke, mocking her own privilege. She tweeted, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. So when people were trying to compare Justin Sacco to Amy Cooper, and I saw that happening both on the left and the right, um, it, it sort of, I thought I had to say something because the people on the right who were doing it were saying Justin Sacco didn't do anything wrong and, ni and neither did Amy Cooper. And then the people on the left who were conflating the two incidents were basically saying, look at the terrible thing that Amy Cooper did just as bad as what Justin Sacco did. So, but, so there was like a moral flattening on both sides. Right. The people who wanted Justin Sacco to be worse conflated her with Amy Cooper. And then the people who wanted Amy Cooper to be less bad conflated her with Justine Sacco. And given that I was the person who gave the world the Justine Sacco story, I, I, I felt that I had to say something. And so I did. And what I said was that, you know, Amy, that the two things are, diff are very different. Amy Cooper committed a crime. She was, um, she was, um, uh, she made a, a false police report. Right. Um, and so, you know, we stopped a show on the BBC called Crime Watch UK, where, you know, we tried to solve crimes through CCTV footage. And so for me, the Amy Cooper incident felt more like being in the tradition of, of, of a crime solving show. Now, none of this means I'm, I was happy to see Amy Cooper being piled in on, because I'm not happy to see anyone being piled in on. Um, but I do think it, I do think it was a very different set of circumstances, the kind of people I wrote about and so even publicly shamed, who were people who hadn't committed crimes. These were people who were being disproportionately punished um, for minor transgressions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I hesitate. I'm not in any way saying with Amy Cooper um, making a false claim and, and a false police report that I'm implying that women shouldn't be believed or shouldn't be listened to at all. I, like, I think it's very dangerous to yeah. move in the direction of using her as an example to say, ha-ha, like all of these claims, it's all bullshit. Right. But I, I am... I am just interested in the cognitive dissonance that if you said believe all police officers for everything they say, everybody yeah. would say that's a preposterous suggestion. You're you're pointing to the you're pointing to the sort of problem, you know, the sort of complexities of what intersectionality, right? That's is, it. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, and as a Jew, I share that because I really hate the fact that it's basically okay basically okay to be anti-Semitic, you know, like, yeah. on, in lots of places. It's like anti-Semitism is the, is the bigotry that people are kind of all right about. So, so I, I, I think about, <laughs> I, um, I think about it in those terms. I, I remember, I think Hadley Freeman, who's a writer on The Guardian, said it's, it's, it, it, surely it shouldn't be believe all women, it should be listen to all women. Um, sure. Yeah, so that's, that's, um, 
But it, it, it is tricky that, you know, like, like my girlfriend and I went through the entire Mad Men, and it's really interesting. Uh, one thing that we really seized on was these two women on the show, and my girlfriend's saying the set, them confronting sexism in that time, one of them plays the female role in order to navigate that, that system and eventually become partner, the Joan character. And Peggy is playing a male character, trying to assume the male role to navigate the system. Mm-hmm. And I was, it led us to a discussion of, is the workplace better for you in kind of the corporate world? And she said, well, in, in the, the macro, uh, probably, like, I mean, t- there's there's none of the egregious sexism like there was, but all of the subtle sexism is exactly the same. There's mm-hmm. all of the same issues to deal with. It's just now there's the illusion of that it's a merit. You get lectured that it's a meritocracy, but the moment a woman is um, demonstrating the same characteristics that you'd hire a man in, she becomes opinionated and they're all seen in a negative point of view. And so she, she was saying, I don't know how much has improved here. And, and I thought the show did a good job of kind of adjudicating the complexities and ambiguities of that. Um, but that never seems to be where, I mean, the discourse is with these shamings. It always just seems to be distilled to very South. I always think with South Park, it's interesting. There's no teenagers on South Park. It's it's grownups and it's children. But the teenager is America that's providing the plot lines. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Very true. Um, yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. <laughs> well, I, I just say this just because do you feel like when you've got both sides politically, uh, I mean, how much hate mail did you get for that book? <laughs> what was well, you know, not, not, not as much as I, as my bad memory thinks I did. Like, I got, I got like nine, I would say... 90% of, of the people who read the book liked and appreciated it, but the 10% who I actually don't think read the book. I I saw that, you know what, I, 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 I'm not going to name him or her, but I, I saw a Pulitzer Prize. After, very shortly after the book came out, um, a guy in Slate wrote a really... Uh, un- I thought unfair piece about the book um, where he said he was talking about Jonah Lehrer, the um, pop science writer who who fabricated quotes, who I write about in that book too. And uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, this piece in Slate came out that said that I was treating Jonah Lehrer and Justine Sacco in, in the same way. Like, I didn't think that what Jonah Lehrer did was any worse than what Justine Sacco did, which was just not true. Like, the book made it very clear that, that I considered what Jonah Lehrer did to be worse than what Justine Sacco did. Um, but then that piece went out, and I noticed, like, a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic tweeted about my book that, like, like repeated that. So I... I DM'd them and I said, I can't help thinking that, you know, I saw you slagging off my book and I can't help thinking that you may not have read it, but but, but instead you read that Slate piece and they emailed back to say, oh, I've been meaning to read it. Um, so, so a little bit of that was going on after the book came out. There was like this sort of false narrative coming out about the book that other people were leaping on because it was 
you know, because people put a lot of stock into shaming. You know, people on the left really want to shame people. They think, well, shaming is the is the um, is is a is a weapon of the marginalized. So well, if and and I would also just say. I, I apologize for interrupting, but I would also just say that the publishing industry and magazines also are trying to promote, you know, Whoa. confrontation. I mean, I, I had a, a, a horrible email from a guy at Columbia University for an article that I wrote for, uh, I think it was Salon, and it was about Cuba, and a line that was in the piece, they transformed into a completely different headline, which, as I said, at times, Cuba feels as if you're reading 1984 that was written by Charles Dickens. And what they wrote in the headline was, an author travels to Cuba and discovers an Orwellian nightmare. Hmm. Well, it's not right. at all what I said. And that that's not, like, I, I was speaking to a very specific thing that you get confronted with there. And the Dickensian comparison was that it's much more lively than this dysotopian dry, you know, sort of thing of Orwell's imagination. But this guy, just as you're describing, wrote me this hateful email that I was cashing in on a, an easy target like Cuba and then cited all of this material to create this sort of dialectic about America versus Cuba and foreign policy. And I had to write back, just as you're saying, saying, did you only read the headline because everything you're citing as evidence that I need to read is in the piece and is actually my perspective? Yeah. Yeah, and it happens time and time again. I mean, when you think about it, you know, who's benefiting from from shamings? Um, uh, when it comes to to things like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, you know, society is benefiting. Um, but when it comes to these individual shamings of like somebody didn't do very much wrong, but is like plucked out to be, you know, the new most hated person, who's benefiting? Um, the tech companies are making a fortune, right. cash from chaos. Um, there's a long history of, uh, just like Naomi Klein's shop doctrine says, there's a long history of companies making money from destabilizing chaos. Uh, and um, newspapers are, are, are making money because they can ride on the coattails of these shamings and there could be a sort of symbiosis between um magazine articles and and you know the, the social media shames the only people who are not making any money are, are the shamers we're like un, you know when we shame people online we're like unpaid shaming interns for google and twitter um so um yeah there well, are always vested interests and, and and what this does is 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 narrow our definition of what it is to be a human being uh, we're no longer, as I say, and so you've been publicly shamed, um, we know that people are a mixture of sins and flaws and positive aspects and negative aspects. We're an intriguing mess. But but the way that humans have been redefined on social media is, you know, it's wrong to be curious about a transgressor, because if you're curious about a transgressor, that means you're kind of agreeing with them. Um, it's, um, and, it's, and it's valid to define a person by a sliver of their life, usually some bad wording in a tweet. Um, it's uh, on social media now that's considered 
okay, an okay way to, to regard our fellow humans. And, and it's clear that it's not. It's clear that, that the more curious you are about somebody and the more you realise that human beings are just a complicated mix of positive and negative. I'm not saying everyone, yeah, I wrote a book about psychopaths and a high-scoring psychopath is kind, you know, is a lot more negative than positive. So I'm not saying every, uh, I'm not saying every human, but, but I'm saying most humans but 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 I I do think it's an interesting time. There has never been more popularity as a shallow form of entertainment than murder. Like I mean, just turn on Netflix, turn on HBO. People love this stuff. But suicide can't really be printed. We're very hesitant to talk about it, in leading to people repeating it. And I always wonder that murder seems so shallow, especially serial killers. But, but suicide is always deeply internal. Mm. It has depth. Mm. It has pathos. And that makes us very uncomfortable. I mean, every religion goes out of their way to prohibit suicide as being yeah. so, so threatening. And yet we're in a country where as much as we talk about guns and how many people are getting killed from guns, people are far more likely to kill themselves with a gun in the United States than anybody else, which is yeah. not talked about very much. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point, and you're absolutely right. Uh, people don't want to... to um, well, when I made the last days of August, I was in this very situation. Um, I, so it's a show about a porn star who took her life. Yeah. Um, so it's a show about suicide. But as soon as we started um, researching her life, people started saying, I, I think her husband might have had something to do with it. I, um and I think I think in retrospect, those people have probably been listening to too many true crime podcasts themselves. Um, and so I was then in this position where I could derive narrative tension from speculating about or, or just, you know, dropping hints as to maybe her husband had something to do with this. I could have made a, a could have been a, a, a hit show. Uh, using her using suspicion about her husband as a narrative device, um, and I just I couldn't do it. I just could, I couldn't bring myself to do it. It would have been too unethical. So at the at the top of episode two, I said, "This isn't this isn't a murder show." Um, I, I, and I it was just, su- and it was such a relief, you know, it was such a relief to not to not have to play that game. No, I mean it's just it's just interesting to me because I I was listening to I think Caitlin Flanagan make the point all of these school shootings are men. They're all boys or men, these mass shootings. And I just thought that's, it, it's very true. I mean, unequivocally, it's over, it, all the data points that. But I was just thinking on the other side of it, we don't talk about it as much with true crime because men like to play the video games where it's a first-person shooter. They like to act this out. They want to see those movies. But women like to identify with the victims and get a lot of pleasure from that aspect of it. Unless it's, I had this conversation with somebody once, and they they said, "Well, is it just is this about um, what's the word? Is this like a risk assessment? Do women do do women uh, listen to true crime podcasts for risk assessment reasons? Like I, I don't know. I'm not a woman. I don't know. No, I, I don't either. It was just really obvious, and I, I really like the documentary documentary of Michelle McNamara and the book as well. But it was just intriguing how she was navigating it as an author to sell this where it's largely about pleasure and yet it's it's it it has to operate under the auspices of justice 
And yeah. there's this unacknowledged kind of sewer of pleasure, which is overflowing. You know, she's obsessed with it, but you can't really acknowledge the fun of it. Whereas yeah. we can kind of chastise men for enjoying the pleasure voyeuristically of killing in video games. And then not, not that they're unassailable either. Obviously, that is a heavily criticized aspect of male identity, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, but it was funny being in that position. It's part of the reason why I got my situational depression that we talked about at the beginning of the interview that that just that it's like am I am I going to use August's husband in as in this way and just it was just just rattling I was like I can't do this it was just rattling around in my head like I can't I can't get derive narrative pleasure out of out of that out of people saying that they think August's husband murdered her um yeah. Yeah, so it's funny. I was put in that situation, and and it kind of drove kind of drove me crazy. And in the end, I I didn't do it. Like I I didn't do it. I I didn't use Kevin in that way. Have you struggled with that in other? I mean, Louis and you talked about that, where Louis mentioned seeing that he might be Jewish with the neo Nazis, and not remembering yeah. that he. Had that and then editing that part out so it looks much more like the onus is on the anti-Semitism of the subject, but not to say that there wasn't anti-Semitism there, but, um, right. but it was a little... Yeah, no, I don't, I don't remember being in, in, in a situation that, that bad. Um, um, yeah, that was, the, that was the hardest. I don't... Like, when I've been hanging out with Nazis and stuff, like Louis, me and Louis... Um, one time I was interviewing a guy called Jack McLam. I made a, in, in my book, Them, there's a chapter about Ruby Ridge, about the shootings at Ruby Ridge. And um, the guy, this is a family of white separatists who were, who got in too deep and uh, with federal agents who wanted the father to be a, an informant and he refused and, and it escalated. And in the end, the federal agent shot Vicky Weaver, the mother, and and the and the boy, uh, the son. Um, anyway, the one of the hostage negotiators was a guy called Jack McLam. Uh, so I went to see him, but he lived in this incredibly isolated community called Almost Heaven, which was um, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from you know, civilization. And uh, and I remember I drove there. It took me better part of a day to drive to this isolated community and. And I turned up and, you know, wound down the window with a guy. And I said, hi, I'm looking for Jack McLam. And he said, oh, you're a Brit. We had another Brit here last week, Louis Theroux. <laughs> oh, you can't. Me and Louis, I used to joke that we were like conjoined twins and that for one of us to grow stronger, the other one had to die. And, and so for a while, me and Louis were um, not anymore, I'm glad to say. But uh, Well, it, sound, yeah. it sounded like he was very uncomfortable with your success in America because in Canada being raised there, I mean, the BBC was a regular thing with masterpiece theater and stuff. I mean, not that my father was a huge Anglophile, but he definitely, it was a big part of what I was raised on. Right. Um, whereas well, the United I'm, States was not present. Right. Well, it's nice, you know, that Louis envies that, that aspect of things. It's nice to be envied. I, I envy things about Louis. I, I envy, um, I envy his brilliance of being in the moment. Um, I, I am constantly 
like a rabbit in the head in the headlights in awkward situations and I don't say the perfect thing uh, Louis frequently says the perfect thing so I, I envy that skill that he has well you you mentioned as another sort of comparative example of a filmmaker Nick Broomsfeld um, uh, Broomfield I don't you you kept you, you kept calling him Broomsfeld with Louis too so it's clear that have I, a, it's good you have a something about the word Broomfield that oh. your brain doesn't like no, I have a number of those. I, I had some serious sleeping issues, so I'd like to blame that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nick, Nick, Nick was our, you know, in the family tree of this kind of this kind of journalism. Um, at the very top, are uh, you know, Wiseman, Penna Baker, um, but then easily the most influential documentary maker for me was Nick Broomfield, um, particularly his film. The leader, his driver, and the driver's wife, to take um, to take South African neo-Nazis and treat the subject with sort of comic absurdity was yeah. totally new when Nick did that, and it, it was like I, I felt like Paul becoming sword on the road to Damascus when I watched that film. I thought that's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to meet Nazis and I'm going to make fun of them, just like, just like Nick did. And, and I think my style evolved over the years and I, and I stopped doing that pretty quickly, but Nick absolutely inspired me to, to do what I ended up doing. And, and Louis too. Huh. Who were some of the others? I mean, when you were growing up, I mean, you mentioned when you were interviewed by Louis you born in Wales, but you don't have a Welsh accent. <laughs> um, no, no. So it's an interesting journey that, that can you walk me through growing up? And what did your parents do? Oh, my father was a, um, uh, uh, he, he ran a warehouse, um, sort of cutlery um, warehouse, uh, not just cutlery, um, but a warehouse, <laughs> like imports and exports, which oh. I, I hoped would indicated something more like you know I was hoping it would be like guns but it was just turned out to be cutlery so my, my dad spent a lot of time like in the docks and in Hong Kong and and, uh, and and as a warehouse man my mother was a social worker for a while and when I became a like about 18 19 they um they bought a little hotel in mid Wales called the Nanfi Lodge so they became hoteliers uh huh. there was no there was only one Ronson in the media and it was my auntie Mavis who was a photographer and she photographed the Rolling Stones when she was like a kid and um, I found a photograph of the Rolling Stones all standing in my grandfather's kitchen in in central London because uh, she did a series called Pop Stars in the Kitchen uh, so somewhere I've got a photograph of, the, of all of the Rolling Stones including Brian Jones in my grandfather's kitchen so my auntie Mavis was like indicative that Ronsons could do stuff she she went around the world and wrote a book about it called We Never Meant to Go So Far when she was 19 where she met the Dalai Lama and got involved in opium smuggling and um wow. and photographed it all yeah and um so she and then she died when I was like 10 um, so, um, so she was the Ronson who, who was evidence that there was more to life than running a warehouse in Cardiff. Do you think if, if she didn't exist, you would be where you are now? Because I think that's a really big deal to have that passport into the life that you want to have. 
Um, I, I I don't know the answer to that question. I, I think I think I had a natural. There was one thing I that I had a natural talent for, and that was nonfiction writing. So when I watched the Nick, that Nick Broomfield documentary, right. and I would read, you know, Tom Wolfe's New Journalism. You know, I know you had Gator Lee's on. You know, I read Thy Neighbor's Wife when when I was a kid. Um, and, and they were really, and, and there was a documentary maker called Ross McElwee, who's pretty forgotten now, but was really important. Um, his he made he made this documentary called Sherman's March, which was as yeah, I, I think as important, right? But a lot of people have forgotten that documentary now. So, but so I was really drawn to that stuff. I was, and I was really drawn to Vonnegut, um, which, like Nick Broomfield, was taking horror and turning it absurd. Like the theatre of the absurd, um, yeah. Huh. yeah. Slaughterhouse Five was, was so. I think I might have ended up. I think my, you know, my auntie Mavis was evidence that a Ronson could have an exciting life. Um, but I was really drawn to that stuff, and and then it turned out that I could write. I, I was the only. I, I had one natural-born talent, and it was writing. And I, and why I was given that, I don't know, but. Um, it was fucking lucky because otherwise I don't know what I would have done. When 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 did writing? What was the first thing you got paid for to write? Um, I moved to Manchester. I became my I became the social secretary at um, at my college, like the entertainment officer at my college. Um, so I started. Um, uh, hanging out with bands as a result of that, and a couple of the bands that I started hanging out with came from Manchester. And one of them was the Frank Sidebottom band. Uh, Frank wore the big fake head that he never took off. Years later, I wrote a co-wrote with Peter Straw in a movie inspired by that time called called Frank with Michael Fassbender wearing a big fake head that he that he never took off. But but when I moved to Manchester to be in Frank's band, um, a lot of the bands were making a little bit of money working for the local listings magazine called City Life, uh, which was kind of like Manchester's Time Out. And so I'd get the odd 20 pounds, 40 pounds writing a film review or interviewing a celebrity for City Life. Uh, and Frank Sidebottom's manager, a guy called Mike Doherty, sat me down one day and said, you know, you're not cut out for the music business, John. You know, you're not a very good. Um, I mean, luckily, the fact that I the fact that you only needed to know how to play C, F and G to be in Frank Sidebottom's band, which just happened to coincide with the three chords that I knew how to play. Um, but Mike Doherty said, you're going to end up being some kind of writer. Mm. Um, and my first thought was like, I hope not, because all I knew about writing was that it was a, you know, Kurt Vonnegut would always really complain about writing, sitting alone day after day, chain smoking. Um, so when Mike Doherty said that to me, I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a very good life, um, but it is the life that I ended up having, and and it and it was a good life. Well, I can see a definite through line between Vonnegut and say the sens sensibility of uh, Doctor Strange Love, you know, and I'd love to hear about that uh, that story connecting you to Kubrick at the end of his life and this fucking tragic missed opportunity of meeting him because I you were so close um yeah it wasn't a missed opportunity though I'm not sure that I would have ever well I'll tell you the story so the the, the very first documentary I made um 
probably the first ever was a radio documentary called Hotel Auschwitz, which was about the marketing of Auschwitz. It was about the battles between the between the uh, big wig travel agents in Krakow and the little sort of 90s Airbnb type people in Auschwitz. <laughs> and, um, and their gripe was that everybody wanted to come to Auschwitz, but nobody wanted to stay the night. So I made it. So I made a documentary about the wars uh, between <laughs> between those those two groups of people, those two groups of travel people in Poland. Um, and so, but so obviously it was about the marketing of the, the Holocaust and the marketing of the concentration camps and how they were like luring Jews back, but for money this time. And um, so I made this documentary. And shortly after it aired, I got a telephone call from a very posh sounding man saying my name is Tony uh, my employer would like a copy of your documentary Hotel Auschwitz and I said who's your employer and he said I'm afraid I can't tell you and I said oh go on <laughs> and he said oh okay <laughs> Stanley Kubrick uh, so I so I sent the tape off and then nothing I never heard another word until after he died which was probably three or four years later and Tony phoned again and said would you like to come up for lunch so I went to Kubrick's house for lunch um got got the tour and there were and I got home and my wife was like I was just beginning to write I was just beginning to work on the book that eventually became The Men Who Stare at Goats and so my my when I got home my wife said to me like what, what was the house like and I said it was amazing it was just it's full of boxes it's like boxes everywhere and she said, what's in the boxes? And I was like, well, yeah, I don't know, paperwork. Just, it seems like he, they just kept everything in boxes. There's like a thousand boxes in this grand country house near London. Um, so Elaine said, well, maybe it'll be useful for, for your men. You know, he made Dr. Strange left. There might be some really great research in there that you could use for the men who stare at goats. So I phoned up Tony and I said, can I start looking through the boxes? Because it might help me with this book I'm writing. And Tony said, yeah, sure. So, so, but then it became a project on its own. It became about me um, looking through the boxes. So I wrote a big piece for The Guardian about it called Citizen Kubrick. Um, and, um, and then they didn't, but the Kubrick said didn't like that title because they thought it implied, you know, in, in Citizen Kane, he's this reclusive figure. And they didn't like the idea. They didn't like the image of Kubrick being this kind of mad recluse. Uh, and I was like, no, no, no. You know, the the connection isn't isn't the reclusiveness. It's the boxes. Yeah. So, so, so and but anyway, we compromised. And when I ended up making the documentary, I called it Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, um, for that reason, and not Citizen Kubrick. So so yeah. So I spent years um, on and off going up to the Kubrick house first for the article and then for the documentary just going through the boxes. I was, between me and a guy from Taschen, I, we were the first two people ever to look through Stanley Kubrick's stuff. Fast. Was, was that guy Leon around at that time? No, Leon had moved, this is Leon Vitale. So Kubrick yeah. had, yeah, Kubrick had two assistants. Um, one was Tony Fruin and the other was Leon Vitale. And no, Leon Vitale had moved to LA by then. Um, I met him once right at the very end of the filming. Um, we did a trip to America where we did a tiny bit of filming and I actually have always felt a little guilty um, about the fact that so much of the documentary 
was about Tony Fruin and his relationship with Kubrick. And so little of it was about Leon Vitali and his relationship with Kubrick, when Leon Vitali was just as important to Kubrick as Tony Fruin was. Um, and I, I think I probably pissed Leon Vitali off by the fact that he was in the documentary so so little. But that was only because we pretty much finished the documentary by the time we went to L.A. Um, well, no, I think film worker definitely drove home how hard he worked for uh, yeah yeah exactly any wrong any inadvertent wrong that i committed was certainly mitigated by by liam Batali's film what was he was kubrick somebody special for you as a filmmaker or the sensibility of, of um, his films at all not in the same way that someone like vonnegut was like kubrick huh. didn't kubrick didn't speak to me in that um, in that I want to do what Kubrick does. Uh, he was way too good <laughs> to ever think I could emulate that. Um, so, so I really, so I loved Kubrick, and I, I, and I, you know, ravenously throughout my life watched everything that he ever made. But it was much more as a sort of, you know, just a fa in the same way like I loved Scorsese, sure, you know, sure. like a huge fan, but. Um, so I'd, yeah, but but not somebody who I wanted to emulate. It was interesting because we mentioned uh, by DM that we both dealt with his widow, Christiana, Chris, Christian. Uh, uh, Christiania. Christiana, there's an A at the end? It's Yeah, but it's pronounced, no, I think it's an E. Whether or not there's an A or an E at the end, it's Christian. Christiane. Okay, I just had one interview with her be to do with Kubrick's obsession with chess because I kept finding people that had dealt with Kubrick, and they're all in their 80s now, who remembered him never paying entry fees to chess tournaments and saying, you can, you can have my winnings. <laughs> and, there, and there never were winnings. I'm just going to let my cat in for one second. Excuse me. Sure. Um, but I was kind of astounded at just how normal she was given given how pathologized kubrick has been yeah when you meet when you meet the people around kubrick all the mythology about him being this mad hermit genius drops away completely i i think it was a it was a media creation um obviously you see him behaving in in exceptional ways when you watch the making of the shining documentary and so sure. on you know the way that he would like yell at um, um but then i we uncovered when i was making sally kubrick's boxes we uncovered a bunch of footage that vivian kubrick had shot that nobody had ever seen um on the set of full metal jacket and we and i watched all 18 hours of that and used some of this in the documentary and kubrick comes across as just totally normal and nice in in, in that documentary there's there's nothing like like the way that, that he would scream at um shelly uh, Sh Sh duval duval thank yeah. you um, there was nothing like that. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. But no, Christiane Kubrick is one of the loveliest people I think I've ever met. Just adorable. And, and I, I carried on, you know, we, I had lunch with her after that film was all finished. Her and Jan Harlan, her brother, Kubrick's brother-in-law, they couldn't have been more helpful. Once they decided to trust me, um, they were just behind the project all the way. And there were there were problems like lawyers, trusts, estates, 
you know, there was a lot of people who, who once we'd finished the documentary, had an opinion, like on the Kubrick side of things. Yeah. And Jan and Christiane were doggedly supportive of the documentary in a way that I'm just so grateful for. Like, they really pulled out the stops for us. I'm curious, just as a, a last question, do we have time for just one more question? Sure, sure. Um, just how you go about finding your ideas and developing them? Um, it's hard because it's sometimes months go by when I don't have an idea. Um, it's always some, I always, I want to solve mysteries. I, so I want to enter a world that I don't understand. Um, so the Kubrick house was a world that I didn't understand, mysterious world. Um, the psychopath test, um, which is probably my favorite of my books. The, um, Why is that? Why is it your favorite? I like, I like the, I like the, seeing me publicly shamed feels more, it's still a really funny page turning book, but it's, it's a little more serious and academic. The psychopath test is, it feels like a Vonnegut type book. It's absurd. It's taking a very dark, going into very dark places, but always treating the, treating it with sort of comic absurdity. And I, I, I like the audacity of that. Um, but again, it was like a mystery. You've got all of these Harvard psychologists who say that you're four times more likely to have a, psych, a psychopath at the top of the tree than at the bottom. So I would, so I thought, wow, like, hey, is that true? Like there's a particular mental disorder that's like the worst mental disorder in the world and society promotes people that have this mental disorder. Like, is that true? Or is that the kind of glib thing, kind of thing that psychologists just say? Um, and, but so how could I find out? I know I'll learn how to spot psychopaths and then I will journey into the corridors of power and try and spot them. Um, and it was the same kind of idea that I had in my book, Them. You've got all of these nascent conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, who I, again, I. I, I, um, that book then pretty much introduced Alex Jones to the world. Uh, you've got all of these conspiracy theorists who believe that the world is being controlled by a shadowy cabal. Uh, abducted by aliens. I, I live in a farming village, so every so often you get tractors going by. Um, uh, yeah, all of these conspiracy theorists believe that there's a shadowy cabal secretly ruling the world. I know I'll hook up with people like David Icke and Alex Jones and we'll try and find the shadowy cabal and we'll, when we find it, we'll get in and we'll confront the shadowy elite going about their covert wickedness. So similarly to the psychopath test, that was a genuine, genuine mystery. And I, and I had a narrative, like a journey, where whatever happened was going to be interesting. Like, where do we find the secret room? Whether the secret room even exists? Same with the psychopaths. Will I find psychopaths in the corridors of power? Just the, just me going there, trying to do that. So it's a mix of like a narrative idea that you don't know what's going to happen, but whatever happens is surely going to be interesting, coupled with a genuine mystery to solve. And you couple that with, it's an important mystery. It's kind of important whether or not psychopaths rule the world. And it's also kind of important that there's a rise of conspiracy culture and these conspiracy theorists, this is back in the 90s, you know, decades before QAnon, um, believe this, that there's a shadowy cabal. These are important things. Um, so 
I think a combination of all of that is the perfect story. It's funny though, you know, because when I, I watch your films and I see your sensibility, it seems kind of like there's some kind of intersectionality with Alice in Wonderland and Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> yeah. In, in a very pleasing way. And I feel like when I watch like the films of Adam Curtis and I love both of your, your work, um, it's not for lack of accuracy with where he goes, but I, it takes me about four days to detox from just feeling total despair. Like, I feel like that Kafka line as he's dying, it, you know, is there hope? Well, yeah, but not for us. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, it's funny. I'm vague, I'm vague plus friends without him. And, and when and he's actually just fun, you know, I mean, my memories of hanging out with Adam is like going to see like Anchorman 2. Or, <laughs> so, it's a very, so it's funny, like the sort of darkness that comes into Adam's documentaries really isn't evident when you, you know, go out for dinner with him or, or, or go to the movies with him. Is that true? I mean, I watched not long ago Century of Self and the Edward Bernays rabbit hole of God bringing Freudian analysis into advertising. I mean, talk about the Mad Men we were discussing oh, before. Yeah, I mean, yeah. For me, essentially, the self is 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 Adams. You know, I mean, Adams made a lot of masterpieces, but for me, that one's the masterpiece. And in fact, my book, The Psychopath Test, is is really inspired by Century of the Self. And in fact, Adams in the Psychopath Test, like. Um, there's a scene of me and Adam having dinner and he becomes like my sensei and tells me to go off and do something. Huh. Uh, yeah. last, last thing, I just curious, next five years, what are some projects that you're interested in if you're open to, um, I don't know. I, I can't answer. Like I'm working on a couple of things now, slightly more sedentary things because of the pandemic. So I'm making a history show. Um, and I'm working on a screenplay. Over the years, I've written a couple of screenplays. Um, I, I co-wrote Ukja with um, Bong Joon-ho. It was the, fi the film he made before Parasite. Um, so I'm working on a couple of screenplays and I'm working on a sort of history radio show and I'm working on a book idea. But, um, but no, it's all a mystery. I, I don't know what the next five years is gonna... Um, I'm hoping it'll be a little bit less busy than the last 35 years, which have, if anything, been a little too busy. Um, I'd, I'd rather like the idea of chilling out a little bit and not working quite so hard. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Thank you so much for this time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. And, and it's the end. I started work at I started work nine hours ago, so now is the end of the day. I will make myself a drink and stare at the pond. Perfect. And thanks again for today, and I'll let you know when it's up. But thank you again. Cool. My pleasure. Nice talking to you, Ben. Likewise, John. Thank bye. You. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.